Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. The summer before I was ordained an Episcopal priest, I spent eight and a half very intensive weeks completing an ordination requirement called clinical pastoral education. CPE is often done in hospital settings where graduate students serve for a period of time learning to support patients that are in the hospital, along with taking classes that encourage us into a deep time of self-reflection and spiritual growth. In my particular hospital program, each of us was assigned to a specific floor for the duration of that two-month experience. I was assigned to the perinatal unit. Every afternoon, I was invited into the lives of women who during their pregnancy had to be hospitalized. Our final class project that summer was to write a paper sharing some of the insights and learnings that we had had about ourselves and the experience of serving and supporting people in the hospital. Those of you who know me probably won't be surprised that the assignment of writing a paper was something that I thought maybe was not going to be the best way of reflecting my learning. So instead, I did this. I created something that I thought could actually help me remember for years to come some of the deep insights and learnings that I had had during the summer. Both outside and inside, I collected symbols that allowed me to talk about some of those learnings during our class time. And though it was done 20 years ago, I still look at what was created and remember some of the stories that were shared with me and touched me deeply. But for today, I want to share two items that all these years I have kept in this box that relate to the gospel lesson and our Lenten journey today. The picture is of a little beautiful baby girl. And the other item is a little teeny diaper used on premature babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. The picture is of a beautiful baby whose name was Christine. She was six weeks old, and that picture was taken on the last night of her life. She had been born prematurely to wonderful young teenage parents, April and Joe. And during my time in the hospital, I was able to be with them for this short but very important time in their life. That night, I stood with them as she was taken off of life support. During moments like those, no amount of theological training can equip anyone for such a devastating experience. Words fail as heart breaks, hearts break, and all you can really do is try to be present and to share the weight of that kind of grief. Christine had been born prematurely to first-time teenage parents who were quickly thrown into an emotional whirlwind that no one ever should have to navigate. And on that particular night, 
They became members of a club that no one ever wants to be any part of. I had watched them in the previous days show up as tender-hearted, faith-filled parents, lost in a haze of not knowing in their words what they had done wrong and with no idea what would happen next. Christine's entire short life was spent in an incubator. Her parents never had a chance to hold her to their chest, but still they came every day to the NICU to see her and through two small little openings in an incubator with gloves on, they were able to reach in and caress her best they could. I wasn't there every time that they came, but enough times so that on that particular night, when they were told it was time to say goodbye and to remove her from life support, they had me paged and I was able to be there with them. It was nearly 20 years ago, and I still remember how absolutely useless I feel. I had just completed seminary, and I was on the eve of being ordained a priest. I had completed 15 years of religious schooling and training and internships and workshops, and I was now serving as a hospital chaplain, and I didn't have a single answer to the wealth of questions that they asked that night, including questions like these. Why is God punishing us in this way? What should we have done differently? And if there even is a God, how could he have let this happen to our baby? And while many of the other details of that horrific night have faded from my memory, I am sure part of the reason that I remember feeling so inadequate was because I didn't understand what my role should be in that moment. I made the mistake of believing two things that I now know were absolutely wrong. First, I was foolish enough to think that answers would have brought any comfort to them. And second, I was both naive and arrogant, a dangerous combination, to think that as a professional holy person, my job was somehow to fix it or to fix their pain and defend God. The, nothing could have been further from the truth. Since then, I have come to learn and to believe that the role of all of us as faithful companions on the way is first and foremost to show up for each other and to listen and to make space and room for our lived experience, no matter how joyful or how horrific it might be in the moment. Likewise, the particular role of a priest, I believe, is simply to be a spiritual companion, walking alongside with others wherever the journey leads, and especially into those places where answers are often in short supply. And that is one of the reasons why I have lifted up the theme of goodness for our Lenten journey this year. Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his daughter Mfo dedicated this entire book that we have been using this season titled Made for Goodness and Why It Makes All the Difference in order to remind us that the tragedy of any circumstance for groups or individuals does not have to dictate or prescribe the outcome of our heart. Through story after story, they share moments of resilience and perseverance, times when bad things do in, in fact happen to good people, and how they have navigated that spiritual landscape and learned 
from the resilience and vulnerability, righteous indignation, and tenderness of otherwise devastating moments, many of which were lived through the decades of institutionalized racial segregation created by apartheid. The Tutus introduce the South African Koso word and concept of Ubuntu as one way of explaining what they have learned about the role of goodness in our lives. It's the understanding that human beings need each other for survival and well-being. The spirit of Ubuntu is described often using the phrase, I in you and you in me. It's a deep interdependence of mutuality and connection. It's a way of seeing and a way of being in the world. They go on to say it like this, a person is a person through other persons. So we must care deeply for one another in order to thrive. Their lived experience as spiritual guides and religious teachers, as advocates for liberation and social justice, offer a compelling narrative in which they conclude that goodness is who we are and indeed what we have to offer each other. But what happens as the title of Rabbi Harold Kushner's now iconic book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, do in fact occur? How does being made for goodness help us when our hearts are broken or tragedy hits? When parents lose their newborns, and when we hear about different kinds of deep suffering. When we read about uncomfortable passages of scripture like we do today in the Gospel of Luke. All of this is the stuff of the theological concept called theodicy. How is it that a good God lets bad things happen? For centuries, theologians and philosophers have wrestled with these kinds of questions. How do we make sense of suffering in the world? What does Jesus say to these kinds of questions? Well, today in the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves in the thick of it with him, and he offers us some helpful insights. He has a brief conversation with some bystanders, and I think what he offers to them might be helpful to us on our Lenten journey as well. First, we hear him say that suffering is not a form of punishment, something that our Christian tradition has often used and weaponized against people. So let me say that again. Jesus is clear in this passage that suffering is not a form of punishment. If there is anything we take from Jesus' sharp retort to his audience, it is that suffering, devastation, and loss are real and a part of our lives, but they are not some kind of divine cause and effect plan. Second, just to make sure that they get his point, Jesus uses another example after the first of people who were killed when a tower fell on them. And then again, he asks them, do you think any of those people were any less worthy than you? Again, he says, no. The Tutus say it this way, In God's eyes, there is no hierarchy of suffering. God does not stand aloof, judging and parsing out pain. God suffers with us. God only wills healing. And then 
Just because suffering is not a punishment from God, Jesus reminds them that suffering is still real. In today's reading, Pilate's murderous acts of terror, just like the violence we are watching every night on our screens halfway around the world in Ukraine, these are categorical examples of harm and suffering happening and being inflicted from humans onto other humans. Suffering is real. If sin is understood as anything that separates us from living out of our goodness or rejecting the attributes of Ubuntu and our deep interconnectedness, then yes, there is sin and evil in the world today. Hate has consequences, and there are all kinds of bad behaviors that contribute to much of the misery that we have seen in our history as well as right now. Jesus saw it as well, and I suspect it was one of those things that probably kept him up at night. He yearned to teach us a different way, but more often than not, he was met with resistance. He was a brilliant teacher throughout his short three-year ministry among us, and he used parables as one of his ways to teach. Many have interpreted the parable that we hear at the end of today's reading as more of an allegory, assigning the role of the landlord to God, eager to cut us down and then put Jesus in the role of the gardener, advocating for mercy or leniency. But frankly, I have to say that makes no sense to me and the God of goodness that we find at the heart of so many of the stories of the gospel. Given the consistent picture of God's love and generosity throughout the gospel of Luke, I'm wondering if it doesn't make more sense to think about that parable like this. The landowner as representing our sense of how we think the world should be. And then the gardener as God, as the divine source of love. And finally, as the tree of our truest and very best selves. Think about it. What would this mean in the retelling of the life and death of baby Christine and her parents? These newborn parents needed to love the baby that they knew they would never be able to raise. And they understandably wanted answers explaining why that couldn't happen. There were no answers, but instead they were given companions the gift of Ubuntu, through friends and family, a well-meaning, albeit daft, young chaplain, and a caring hospital staff, all who showed up and embraced the suffering and the pain as a necessary part of the journey. No one tried to fix it that night or in the days following. No one could, but all of us tried to be present and stay connected. I want to believe that each of us is a tree rooted in goodness. The gift for us today might then be the reminder that God's answer to sin and suffering in the world of any kind is not sourced from punishment, but rather just the opposite. God's answer is always love, always goodness, always a force drawing us into connection. Earlier, I mentioned the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The author, Rabbi Harold Kushner, 
knew a lot about suffering in his life. After having survived the death of his son as a young boy, he offered this exquisite insight into and witness into God's love in his life. He wrote, God, who neither causes or prevents tragedies, helps us by inspiring us to help each other. Human beings are God's language. God shows opposition to tragedy, heartache and despair, not by eliminating these things, but by summoning forth people to travel with us, to help us ease and share the burden and to fill the emptiness. The God I believe in does not send us the problem. The God I believe in gives us the strength to cope with the problem and reassurance because we do not have to face our fears and our pains alone. My beloved friends, as we continue to make our way with Jesus to Jerusalem, may we cling to each other in the spirit of Ubuntu. May we grow in our capacity to live from a place of goodness. And may we never forget that we are loved. May it be so.